I still don't. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Save News TV. As always, we thank you so much for welcoming us into your homes. We have uh, our, our um, girl, Callie Mitchell, always with us on what's going on in Israel. She always brings all the news. Today, we're going to talk about Purim um, because it is just so important. We my time of the year is getting into the high holy days. Uh, how are you doing today, Callie? I'm doing really well today. <laughs> Just really enjoying the Lord today. Mm. Before we into, I know, that's what I was getting ready to say. Before we get into Perm, you were telling me you had this awesome experience. So why don't you tell us about that first before yeah. we get into the topic, the subject? Yeah, right. Yeah, I had this really amazing opportunity to share the Lord with a man this morning. Um, I had a friend with me and we were waiting for a women's group that we attend to start. And we were sitting outside of the door um, of the room. And the room is also used for a soup kitchen. And so oftentimes people will come by and ask if the soup kitchen is open that day or whatever. So a man came over and was asking us about the soup kitchen and if it was open, and if that's why we were there. And so we were like, no, we're waiting for a women's group. And he, and so he asked about why, you know, like who's, who runs the soup kitchen. Um, and we told him it was a group of Christians and Messianic Jews. And so it was really interesting because that opened up an entire dialogue with him um, he was a religious man. He had a kippah on his head, um, but the way he was dressed, I could tell he was what we call modern Orthodox here. So not the most religious of the religious, but still very observant. Uh, so when I said that it was Messianic Jews, he said, Messianic mm. Jews, what are those? <laughs> and I was actually surprised that he didn't know what Messianic Jews were because most people at least have some concept of it. So I said, oh, well, they're Jewish people who believe that Yeshua is the Mashiach. And he was like, Yeshua? Who's Yeshua? And, and then my friend chimed in and she was like, Jesus. And he said, oh, Jesus, his name is Yeshua. Interesting. Which was also an interesting thing that he hadn't, <laughs> <laughs> that he didn't know that Yeshua, like that Jesus's name was actually Yeshua. Um, but a lot of times the religious Jews refer to him as Yeshu, which is kind of a derogatory name. It actually comes from an acronym that has a derogatory meaning. Um, so um, <laughs> I was like, yes, his name is Yeshua. And Yeshua literally means salvation. And he was a Hebrew speaker. So he knew, you know, like when we said Yeshua, he knew that this was um, salvation. Mm -hmm. He was like, well, he said, what Jews believe in Yeshua, believe that Yeshua is the Mashiach. Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And I said, well, my husband does. And he said, your husband? And he's Jewish. And I said, yeah, he's Messianic Jewish. He's Jewish and he believes that Yeshua is the Mashiach. And he said, well, why would he believe that? And I said, well, he fulfilled prophecies from the Tanakh and he resurrected from the dead. <laughs> and he was like, he resurrected? What? Messianic Jews believe that the Mashiach resurrected. <laughs> and this was really interesting because, um, you know, I, I like to study a lot of Christian apologetics and 
I've just recently uh, been reading a book where we've been covering evidence for the resurrection. <laughs> so what was really amazing to me is that when he said mm. that, when he said, you know, Messianic Jews believe the Messiah resurrected, he followed up with, he followed up with, do you have evidence for this? And I was just, my mind was kind of blown that he used that specific word evidence because that's what I'd been oh studying. Like I've been studying evidence for the resurrection um, just personally. And with my children, I have, I have a children's book about it. And I've, I'm in another book club where we've been reading what a book called, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And we just covered three chapters on evidence for the resurrection. So when he said that word evidence, I was like, wow, the Lord is really in this. And so um, I responded to him. The one, the what was most on my heart to respond to him was from First um, Corinthians 15, which covers a creed that the early church used um, to remind themselves of the, the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. So I had been really studying that and just seeing how Hebraic it was because, of course, the early church is Messianic Jews, right? So um, I, I said, well, yeah, we have eyewitness accounts. <laughs> and he was like, well, who are these witnesses? And so I went through the list. I said, well, first there was women who met him at the tomb. And then next he appeared to his Talmudim and Talmudim is the Hebrew for disciples. And he said, he had Talmudim. <laughs> and I said, yeah, Yeshua was a rabbi. So he had Talmudim. And, uh, and then he kind of like got off into a little bit of a different area and was like, well, where do you, you know, how do you know where this came from? And I said, what well, was written? Okay, what happened to Callie? <laughs> okay, Callie. Um, let's see what happened to her. She's coming back on screen. Woo! Here I am. <laughs> hey, Callie, you're back? Yeah, I'm back. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Okay. So, yeah. So he, he kind of changed directions just slightly at this point And he was I like, can't well, hear you. Oh, I don't know. Let me see. I can't hear you. I'm here. Can you hear me? The microphone on. I've got it. Well, Callie just jumped out and now we. Now you can't. Nope. Hmm. My internet's good. I don't know what's going on. Wait a second. Let's see if we can get you back now. Okay. Callie? I'm here. Okay. Well, I can hear you now. Okay. All right. You're back. Yay. Okay. So let's start where he was, uh, where you left off before you jumped out of the. Uh, yeah. Where I disappeared a little bit before yeah. you left the string. Right. So we, about the witnesses, right? The witnesses. Okay. I started out with the women and his Talmudim, which are disciples. And, um, and then he was like, yeah, but where is this? How do you know this? And I, I told him it was written in the Brutatashah, which is the new Testament. And he said, yeah, but a lot of people believe in different 
Mashiachs and they have it written down like the Muslims believe that in Muhammad and the Buddhist and you know about Chabad, right? And and so never mind that all these aren't necessarily messianic figures or some are prophets or whatnot. I wanted to stay focused on the resurrection. So I was like, um, um, so I took it back to the resurrection and I was like, uh, yeah, but did these people resurrect from the dead? And he was like, well, no, but still, how do you know? Like, how do you know this is true? And I said, well, there were also other witnesses. There, there were 500 who appeared in the Galilee. And um, most of them were still alive mm-hmm. when the Bible was written. <laughs> and, um, and then he said, well, maybe it was a ghost. And I was really blown away that he said that because this morning, my Bible reading. A ghost? Yes. <laughs> but this morning, I had just read the passage about when Yeshua appeared to, um, it's from Luke 24, when Yeshua appeared to his disciples uh, after the resurrection, and they were like questioning whether or not he was a ghost, and he ate the fish. So I responded to him, well, it's written that he ate St. Peter's fish with them, so he couldn't have been a ghost. And he again, he was like, uh, where is this written? And I was like, Brit Hadashah. <laughs> and I said, you know that the Brit Hadashah was written by Jews, right? And he said, yeah, but that doesn't mean it's true. I mean, maybe they made it up. And um, then, my, then my friend who was sitting with me, she chimed in and she was like, well, they were willing to die for it. Would they have made up something they were willing to die for? And he said, maybe they were paid. Maybe it was about money. And she was like, well, if it's between money and your life, what are you going to choose? And he was like, good point. <laughs> good point. And then he said, but what, what do you care of the resurrection? And I said, well, I'm a sinner and I want to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers. And Yeshua atoned for me too. And he said, well, so the Mashiach is for women too? I don't know about this. <laughs> I was like, he's definitely for women. <laughs> you know, that's one of the great mysteries of the Tanakh is that Yeshua, the Mashiach is for women and for Goy. And he was like, well, I just don't know about this. I have to go now. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to pray for you. And he was like, okay, fine, pray for me. And he was okay with that. So I'm going to be praying for this man. Um, but it was just really <laughs> You know, it was really amazing because I've been, this is where my heart has been studying in my quiet time lately. And I've really been immersed in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, And I would encourage you all to know this passage. Uh, If you look at verses um, three through eight, this, I'm just going to read it to you because I want you to see how I use this in my (laughs) talking with him. It says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Repeat the scripture again, Callie. Okay, it's um, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Okay. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, and the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
Um, and, you know, the Lord inspired this through Paul. So the me is Paul there. But um, this is thought to be an early creed that the church actually had memorized and recited. Um, verses three through five would be the creed. And then um, possibly verses six or possibly verses, uh, yeah, six and seven. Um, but there's some change in the language in the Greek that causes people to not be 100% sure where the creed stops, but they are sure that that um, the creed is verses three through five. And so this was something that the early church had memorized and they would say, and when Paul became a believer, they taught it to him. And so he's including this, the Lord inspired him because God's word is inspired, you know, um, it is God's word. So even though Paul wrote it, it is God's word. But the Lord inspired Paul to use this creed and this teaching. And it's just been so in my heart. So when he said, what evidence do you have? This is what came out. Like these eyewitness accounts. <laughs> this is the evidence that we have. <laughs> so it was just really amazing how the Lord brought that together. And I'm just feel really encouraged um, by that opportunity. And he had such a soft heart, too. I mean, his question, he was genuinely curious. Um, so I'm really praying that he would just stay, stay like in a place where he's thinking on this concept of the Mashiach resurrecting <laughs> and what this means. So um, I didn't catch his name, but you all, please pray for this man because it was just so precious. <laughs> yes. So by that. Yes, yeah. I believe that, you know, so he he kept questioning it. So he does have a desire to know, and the Lord will um, continue to bring him before people, um, so he can get more information and prayerfully become in come into the kingdom of God. Amen. <laughs> yeah. So it was really good. Be praying for him. You know, we all we have our prayer list, so I'll, I'll add him to the prayer team. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> yeah. So good. let's get on. So that would sound like you had a very exciting morning this morning. Yeah, and this was like early. It was before nine a.m. It was like eight thirty, probably around nine actually. Um, so to start out the day with some prophetic and apologetic evangelism, like that's how you want to start your day, right? <laughs> like let's let's get up early and share the Lord. <laughs> so it was just really good, right? Yeah, let's share the Lord. Get up early. Be ready. That's <laughs> to share the good news of Yeshua. And um, this was, you know, we have a major time difference. So it's not, as of this recording, it's 920 yeah. United States Eastern Coast. Yeah. But it yeah. is, um, what time over there now, Callie? It is 420 over here now. Yeah. So well into the afternoon. <laughs> okay. Well, so you... It's the afternoon for you. And so we are just so excited. We thank God for the opportunity and for everybody. If you want to receive Yeshua as your Lord and personal Savior, it's so simple. Just ask him to come into your heart. Be your Lord Be your Lord and personal Savior. Confess that you're a sinner. And um, it's simple as that. He's, you know, he's not complicated. We make him complicated. You know, receiving him is not complicated. He makes it easy for us so that our burdens can be lifted. And if you're a backslider, remember that God is married to the backslider. So 
Come on back to the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> Stop Purim today. Yeah. So let's get into Purim. I'm like, so excited. We have, um, yeah. we, you know, Purim is coming up and then all of our high holy days. You know, I get excited this time of year. <laughs> Another one of those times where we just have, you know, repeated holidays coming and it's a lot of fun. Um, so we get started with Purim. Um which is the Feast of Esther. Uh, I don't know how many people in our audience might be familiar with this because I actually wasn't familiar with Purim until I first attended a Messianic congregation when I was a graduate student in Cincinnati. I knew nothing about it. Like it wasn't part of my Christian tradition at all. Um, it seems like more and more people know, but, right. you know, and of course, you know, because you love Israel and, um, you know, so I don't know what, you know, how, how uh, well-informed people in our audience might be of this, but yeah, it's the, it's the Feast of Esther and the Jewish people celebrate it in the month of Adar on the Hebrew calendar. And it usually falls in February, late February or March. So this year it falls in March and um, it's really fun. It's a giant costume party. Um, I like to say that if you can put a time to visit Mm -hmm. Israel on your, on your calendar, Purim is a really fun time because the whole, you know, all of Israel becomes a giant costume party and it's just really fun to walk down the street in Jerusalem and see everyone dressed up in costumes. Um, it's a really, really fun holiday. Um, but yeah, it celebrates the whole, the whole book of Esther and what Esther did and, um, it is a biblical holiday. That's one thing I like to emphasize when I speak on Purim, uh, because it's not in Leviticus. It's not one of the Levitical holidays, but it is a holiday that comes from God's word. It comes from, I'm just going right. to make sure to open my Bible so I can pull references quickly for you. Uh, so the Bible tells us to celebrate Purim in Esther chapter 9. And it, it falls, it comes up a few times in Esther chapter nine. So basically what happens is that um, Esther, first Mordecai in Esther, she, he issues an edict for the Jewish people to celebrate for him. And then Esther, after that, she also issues an edict in um, chapter nine for the Jewish people to celebrate. And not just the Jewish people who were there in Persia, but um, it's, it's the command is for, every generation and everyone who joins the Jewish people. Um, So for me, I read that and I don't read this legalistically, um, but I read it as everyone who receives Messiah Yeshua and is grafted into the promises of Israel. This is something that we should consider doing as well, not for legalistic purposes, but for a blessing, you know, because it's fun and Um, You get to know God's word and you get to know God's heart differently. So the reason we celebrate Purim, or maybe I should tell you what Purim means first, because it's kind of a funny word. Um, Purim is actually an ancient Persian word, right? So it's a Persian word and and the word means lots. Um, So you see in the story of Purim that the antagonist, who is Haman, and in, more in these states, you guys might say Haman, um, but here in Israel, we say Haman. <laughs> um, but the antagonist of the story, he cast lots mm-hmm. to know when to attack the Jewish people. 
so the story is based or the holiday is named after this act of casting lots and to cast lot in ancient Persian language is poor. Okay, so I also want to note that Persia is modern day Iran. So the um, Jewish people, when they were exiled, there was a community of Jews who lived in modern day Iran. And at this time in history, when they were living there, Iran was the biggest empire in the world. Um, about 44% of the world's population was in this Persian empire. And the capital was a place called Susa. Um, so Esther and her family lived in Susa. And of course, the story goes in the book of Esther that the king, um, King Xerxes, he had this giant party that lasted for six months. And that was very characteristic of Persian culture at the time. They would always have these feasts. That was part of their cultural expression. It was part of their um, pagan um, worship. Um, they were religiously, they were something called Zoroastrians and they had a calendar of feast. So they had about 18 different feasts that they celebrated every year. And then they also had other political feasts. So. The king had this celebration for six months. And then after that celebration was done, he had another one specific for his courts. And he wanted his queen Vashti to come and present herself. She reclined or declined that and refused it. He was embarrassed. He, these feasts involved a lot of alcohol and um, he decided to banish her from the kingdom. So then of course he needed a new queen so he brought all of the young women into a harem and selected a queen. Yeah. Young women, right. And he selected Esther, um, who happened to be Hadassah. <laughs> that was her name. And she was Jewish and she was raised by her cousin Mordecai. Um, her parents had died. And so Mordecai had adopted her and raised her. And um, what's really interesting about Mordecai and we talked about this in our Enemies of God series that we're going to be moving forward on next week. Um, when we talked about the Amalekites, we talked about this some about right, um, right about how um, Mordecai and Esther actually were from the lineage of Saul. Um, they they were descendants of of um, I guess of Saul directly. Um, we can look at where that says. But it says there, let me just go to that passage and show you. Yes. Let's see here. Yeah, okay. So um, in Esther 2, verse 5, it says, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yair, son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamin, Benjaminite. Okay, so Saul's father was Kish. And um, they came from the lineage of Saul. And if you go back and you watch our show on the Malachites, I go into a lot of detail there about how um, Saul was called into battle against the Amalekites. And rather than obeying the Lord and, and devoting them to total destruction and not taking the plunder, he took plunder and he kept king, their king, who was King Agag. Um, so he was disobedient to the Lord and, um, eventually, uh, Samuel executed King Agag, but Saul suffered consequences for this. 
and um, it was a very serious offense against the Lord that he was not obedient in this process. All right, so then the antagonist here, Haman, this is, I mean, this just blows my mind. I, my mind was sort of blown when I was studying the Amalekites when we did that teaching. Um, so the antagonist, Haman, um, it tells us in Esther 3, 1, that Haman, um, is that where it is? Oh, goodness. Okay, yeah, right here. Esther 3, 1. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set him, set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Okay, so when it says that Haman is an Agagite, that means that he descended from the Amalek king Agag. That's what that means. So he was a he was an Amalekite, and he was elevated to the king's right-hand man like he was the most powerful person under the king and then meanwhile the lord has esther who is a descendant of king saul and makes her the queen this is just amazing to me you know to see how the lord ordained and orchestrated this and put this together <laughs> so um the amalekites of course were considered the arch enemy yes they and they embody um in jewish thought today uh, they embody um, a spirit of anti-Semitism. So oftentimes when people are talking about anti-Semitism, they are, they'll reference the Amalekites and the Amalekite spirit. And, you know, these are considered the single arch enemy of Israel. Um, and they came from Iran. And of course, I, we, Israel right now, Iran is Israel's a number one enemy in the world. Um, and so it's interesting how that spirit is kind of carried over um, even today in Iran. And oftentimes if you talk about the Holocaust, um, people will reference the Amalekite spirit in, in present in um, Hitler. Um, I mean, I, I think I'm, you know, I don't know that we could ever prove this, but I, I wouldn't be surprised that, it, that if he was, was a descendant of the Amalekite people in some form, um, just the way that I understand scripture and generational issues. But that's just my opinion. I don't know. It's not provable for what it's worth. But anyway, so the Lord has this set up where you have, you know, you had this battle with Saul when Saul was called to um, come in and fight the Amalekites and he was disobedient. And now you have this set up in the diaspora at a time when the Jews are in exile and just beginning to return. Um, this was about 50 years after they had started returning back to Jerusalem. So you know, that was still, that was in process, but they hadn't returned yet. And so the Lord has this set up where you have this Amalekite as the king's right-hand man, and then you have the queen who's Jewish. And from these two lineages, from the Amalekite king and from um, Saul. And I just think that that is just mind-blowing that the Lord did this. So, you know, the story unfolds that, um, that Mordecai, who's Esther's uncle or cousin, refuses to bow down to um, Haman because he's a man of God. He knows God's law. He knows that he shall not have any idol before him. And this isn't just a one-time thing. This was a lifestyle. So um, there's several months where Haman would come by and Mordecai would refuse to bow to him. 
And Mordecai becomes upset about this and decides that he wants to execute Mordecai and all of the Jews because of this. And he goes to the king and he says, they have a law that's different from yours. And so they're dangerous to you. And he convinces the king to go along with this. Um, but what's really fun is that the Lord also had this set up situation where one day Mordecai was waiting for Esther at the gate and um, he happened to overhear that that um, that there was an assassination plot for the king and he informed Esther about this and so Esther goes and tells the king and the plot is foiled and it's written in the book of Chronicles for the king to remember um, so that's something that's important for later on in the story all right so Haman casts these poor, which is where we get Purim, and decides that it's time to move forward to execute the Jews. And so he goes and he convinces the king. The edict is issued. Mordecai goes to Esther um, and tells her that this happened. And the famous passage where, you know, you were called for such a time as this from verse from chapter four. I'll just read that one. Do not think your, think to yourself. This is for um, 413. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Okay, and, that's what again, Callie? Um, 4 verse 13 is where it starts. Um, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And it's a really um, bold statement because you have here Esther, of course, who saw that when Queen Vashti disobeyed her husband, he sent her away. And so I can imagine that she had fear in her heart about what this would mean. Because at that point in, in the, the law structure there, she couldn't approach the king without being summoned. And she says, you know, she has this dialogue with Mordecai where she's telling him he hasn't, you know, he hasn't called on me. And she knows that she's risking her life to go. And Mordecai is basically like, you're, you have to do this. Like, if you don't, if you don't do this, you're going to perish too. Um, but the Lord's not going to let the Jewish people perish is essentially what he's saying. Deliverance is right. Either way, you won't perish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But us as a people, as a whole, we won't perish you might, our household might, but, you know, as a people, we're not, he will, he will rise someone up. Um, um, but maybe it's for such a time as this, that you're here. Maybe exactly. That's the reason that you're here. Um, and what's interesting about one fact that's interesting about the book of Esther too, is that um, the way that, and I want to point this out because I, I was just kind of, um, you know, what's the word? paraphrasing what happened here, but I didn't do it justice according to the accuracy of scripture because um, nowhere in this book does the name of God appear. And that's something that makes the book of Esther really unique is that the name of God doesn't appear anywhere in the text. So he, as he's talking about this, he's not even, you know, I'm saying like the Lord might, I'm, I'm using this language, but that's not what Mordecai said here. He did in the word here, the God doesn't actually appear, but you can see Mordecai's heart though. You can see that he knows the promises of God for Israel. He knows what, he knows the covenant of his fathers. You know, he knows that God 
is in covenant with Israel and that even if something happens and their households perish, he knows that the nation will be sustained and that the Lord will send a deliverer to, um, to the nation of Israel. He knows that. And so he's speaking to Esther here out of a really bold truth and in a place where he knows God's word, like deliverance is going to come. We might perish. Deliverance is going to come, but maybe this is why God has you here in this moment. So she, um, decides to to do this brave thing and go before the king um and she calls him into a, a feast where she has like a two-day feast with him and she invites him on as well so they have the first day of the feast and they talk over some things and then the second day of the feast is when she actually exposes the plan that haman is going to do this thing and um through that dialogue she also reveals that Mordecai, who he specifically wants to kill, was the person um, that um, foiled the assassination plot. So the king just days earlier, or at some point earlier, um, the story takes place over a few years, actually. So I'm not sure timeline wise, but earlier the king had a sleepless night. And it says that he goes back and he reads the book of Chronicles in his sleepless night and remembers that Mordecai um, spared his life. And he actually gives him a cloak and has Haman parade him through the city, <laughs> uh, which is interesting. So, you know, he's re he's been re reminded of this. I love the part where Haman actually believed, I, I, I you know, when, when I love the part when the king was, um, talking to Haman and he was saying, you know, done this and did this and did that. And Haman really thought that he was about him. And so yeah. he just felt, he gave this, well, you should parade him through the city. You should give him this and that. And, and when he found out that it was Mordecai, <laughs> that he would have to service Mordecai. It was hilarious. I was like, God, God, you always do this. Yeah. The Lord has a sense of humor. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It's really fun. Yeah. So then Esther reveals this plan. And at that point, you know, the king then takes him on and he executes him on the very gallows that Mordecai or that Haman had been to, built to execute Haman on. And um, the thing is, is that he had issued this edict for the Jews to be destroyed and he couldn't undo that edict uh, because it was law at that point. So um, he issued another edict saying that the Jewish people had a right to defend themselves. And so that's what happened when the day came around that um, the Jews were supposed to be destroyed. They defended themselves and they greatly defeated the Amalekites who were in the kingdom of Persia and um they basically like flip the whole story upside down, like the whole, you know, and that's one of the themes of Purim when you celebrate it is like to flip something, you know, like to, in Hebrew, they say a fuk. Um, it means to be like upside down. That's actually what they call a cappuccino. Right. They call it a, a fuk because um, it's an upside down coffee. <laughs> um, so the idea was to like flip it upside down and that's what happened. The plan to destroy them ended up being a great victory for them. Um, and what's really, I think what one of the things that's really significant too yes. is that 
the king actually, in the edict, he gave the Jewish people permission to take the plunder, but they didn't. They didn't take the plunder this time. And I love that. That, that was also a reversal of what happened in Saul's case, where Saul, dis, in disobedience, he took the plunder and he took the king. And I love that, that the, right. uh, that the Jewish people did not take the plunder this time and that they were obedient to the Lord in that process. Um, so yeah, it's just a really, it's a story of a lot of, um, yes. you know, they say in the Jewish, in the Jewish tradition, they said, they tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. <laughs> That's something they say a lot about a lot of the holidays they celebrate. And this is one of those times they tried to kill <laughs> us. They won. Let's eat. <laughs> um, yeah. So the, the word. Yes. Is that, let's eat. We, you know, we're going to do some fellowship and have a plate. Yeah. One thing I would encourage people to do that don't know the story of Esther and uh, there's a movie called One Night with the King. And I would encourage people to either get that movie and watch it. And it really explains it. Sometimes. Are you still there? I lost your audio and Haman and what happened and so um it's the movie is one night with the king right it's a really sweet movie um and it's kid friendly too it's when i show my children so yeah it's great because then you can kind of get the whole story but one thing that's really fun about the feast of Purim when yes. we celebrate it here is that we actually read at, every, at the parties, We every party you have for Purim, you read the whole book of Esther from beginning to end. Or if it's a kid party, you do it more kid friendly. Like maybe you read a children's book about Esther. One time we did a puppet show for the kids and, and uh, told the story that way. But telling the story of Esther is uh, one of the main parts of the party. And when you do it, when you read the book of Esther, every time you say Mordecai, everyone cheers. They go, yay! And then when you say Haman, everyone boos. Boo! And they have these noisemakers that they spin for the party. So it makes reading of it really fun. But I, that's something I really love about it is I love that the party is centrally focused on God's word and reading it. I think that makes it just a really... Um, amazing holiday to add to your family culture um, or your church culture because it so directly includes God's word. So that's a really fun. I mean, I love, I love scripture. So I, I love that about it. Like, I just love that, that that's something that ties in and that every year we know we're going to read the book of Esther at this time. Yeah. So that's something that makes it really special. I think. Um yeah, and then there's some other things just about the tradition yes. of the celebration. So, you know, of course, we wear costumes. We read the Book of Esther while we're there. Um, another thing that's really fun is that the um, in the edict, part of what the Jewish people were commanded to do in Esther chapter 9 is to give food to their friends. There's to send something called Mishloach Manot, um, which is sending food portions to their friends. Um, so that's part of it is that you make baskets of food to give away to your neighbors. Um, and so like when you go to a party, a lot of times they ask you to bring, um, with you and then there's a kind of an exchange. And so you end up taking something home 
too, um, but there's an emphasis on giving food to others. And it's really sweet. I, um, where we, in our previous apartment, our next door neighbors were, um, it was a rabbi and his wife and they were the sweetest couple. And she, she had the most humble, uh, little Mishloach Manot that she would give us every year, but I always looked forward to it so much because I just thought it was so sweet. So it would just be a paper plate and she would put some oranges on there and some mixed nuts and um, a traditional food that they call hamantashen, which means Haman's ears. It's a triangular shaped cookie with some jam in the middle. Um, but she always had that for us every year and I just thought it was so sweet. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's part of the tradition too. So yeah, it's just a really sweet and fun holiday to celebrate with a lot of joy. And um, we, I really, I that's one of the blessings for me in coming to Israel is adopting Purim into my tradition. I just really have enjoyed that. So yeah, that's my basic notes for Purim. Do you have any other yes. thoughts or questions about it? No, I just, I, I was so excited that we were going to talk about Purim today. Yeah. And because it's just so exciting, the the joy, the fun of the holiday and the history behind it. And what was even so much better, made it so much better today was the testimony that you gave at the beginning mm -hmm. of the um, young man that you witnessed to this morning. <laughs> it's just been a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful day. I'm excited about what, you know, what has happened today. Yeah, it's been good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, you know, like I said, um, if you're not familiar with the story of Esther, you know, of course, first and foremost, read the word um, because, you know, you want to be able to get the first total accurate story. But I encourage you to get the movie One Night with the King mm -hmm. and family is very family friendly and um, you will see the story come to life first. I encourage you to read the chapter. And then if you haven't, go look at the movie. But um, it's a very exciting time. It just brings God's word to light. And you celebrate it on, um, Purim is celebrated um, this year on the, it starts Wednesday night, March 16th and continues through Thursday, March 17th. Mm -hmm. um, extending through Friday in Jerusalem. So we get two days. <laughs> uh, if you know, want to know days that, so, you know, you can really, you have time to do your research and to celebrate Purim. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In case you're wondering why we get two days in Jerusalem. So anyway, everybody, we thank you. Huh? Are you guys wondering why we got two days in Jerusalem? I can tell you. <laughs> Um, it's because well, go ahead and explain it to them. Yeah. So in, in Esther, when, um, the Jewish people were battling against the Amalekites and their enemies in, in Susa, the battle actually extended a day longer than the rest of the Persian empire. So as the Jewish people were formulating the tradition, I mean, it's kind of a rabbinic, um, I think it's kind of a rabbinic construct here. But they decided that any city that didn't have a wall around it, or wait, no, any city that did have a wall around it, when this um, took place, 
would celebrate for two days. And they knew for sure that Jerusalem did have a wall. So Jerusalem gets an extra day. <laughs> so that's kind of the reason. It's just to remember that Susa battled an extra day. So um, that's why. But yeah, we get an extra day here in Jerusalem. <laughs> that's fun. All right. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. So everybody, the 6th and the 17th, and if you're in Jerusalem, it extends through Friday. You get that extra day. Yeah. And so let's celebrate, Pearl. But yeah. uh, again, everybody, we thank you so much for inviting us into your You did not have to. We are very appreciative. And make sure that you watch um, Save News, Roku on Fire TV, listen to Save News Radio at savenewsradio.com and get a bunch just full of Christian music and um, and some talk. And so anyway, we thank you so much for allowing us into your homes. You have a very blessed day. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> Alrighty.